This, as you know, is our first uh, leadership lunch of 2018. And it's my great thrill and pleasure to introduce someone I regard as a good friend. Uh, Chris Bowen, of course, is the shadow treasurer in the Labor, federal Labor opposition. Uh, he's only in his mid-40s, but he has a wealth of experience in government, having been a treasurer, uh, an immigration minister, a financial services minister, small business minister, among other portfolios in the Rudd and the Gillard Labor governments. He's also a prolific author uh, and columnist. I knew him well when he was a regular contributor to The Spectator magazine. Uh, but he's also written for mine one of the best books you'll read about federal politics, and it's called The Money Men, Australia's 12 Most Notable Treasurers. Won't surprise any of you to know that the number one treasurer, of course, was Paul Keating. But, the, um, but who also gets a Guernsey is Jim Cairns, of all people, the provocative, controversial <laughs> Labor treasurer in the Whitlam era. There's some great anecdotes there, highly recommended. As it happens, Chris and I went to university together in the early 1990s. Uh, I've known him well in recent years and I like him enormously, even though we've been sparring partners on television. A little known fact about Chris, he's actually in the process of completing a diploma in the Indonesian language. Now you think about that. Since he lost government in 2013, he's been a shadow treasurer, writing books, raising a young family, and doing a course on the English, on the Indonesian language. And I think that makes him five, maybe six federal parliamentarians who speaks an Asian language, which is really quite extraordinary. He's a compelling orator. I think he's Labor's most compelling orator. Uh, and uh, it's a great privilege to welcome Chris Bowen here today at the Centre for Independent Studies. Well, thanks very much, Tom. Uh, thanks for the invitation to join you today. I was very keen to accept the invitation that Greg Lindsay originally uh, uh, extended to me and then Tom uh, followed up on his appointment. And I understand this is the first lunch you've hosted as Chief Executive, Tom, so I'm very pleased to do it. Um, uh, it's a very good appointment that you've made of, of Tom, uh, without, at the risk of making this a mutual admiration society. Uh, <laughs> we do like each other. We are friends. Uh, we do come from a different political pedigree. Uh, but Tom is a very, very serious thinker uh, and a serious contributor to national debates. His Between the Lines radio program is on my permanent podcast playlist while I'm walking the dog uh, uh, around the streets of Smithfield listening to esoteric debates about international relations theory uh, that, Tom's, uh, that Tom is uh, moderating on his radio program. And, of course, he's a, a very, very serious thinker indeed and somebody who I enormously respect and admire. And I think, frankly, he's a loss to the parliament. The Liberal Party is nuts for not putting him in parliament um, and uh, putting him in the cabinet. But now, having successfully destroyed any hope he had of entering, <laughs> entering the federal parliament, the Liberal Party's banner, I'll move on to, to the remarks more broadly. But um, and I said to Tom, last time I spoke here, which was several years ago, and at the former address, I spoke in front of a picture of Friedrich Hayek and I asked where it's gone. Um, but it may appear a little odd that a Labor frontbencher would come to this think tank, which draws on the, the ethos of Hayek and liberalism. I previously argued in different speeches that the true Liberal Party in Australia is the Labor Party. I won't be making that argument today. Happy to discuss it with you offline. It's not what I was intending to, sit, to talk about, but uh, I do defend that line of argument. I do think we are the true party of liberalism in Australia. But I, I come here not only because of my friendship with Tom, but because I do actually respect 
the Centre for Independent Studies as a very serious contributor to the public debate. And I agree with what Tom said, Al although I'm an optimist about the state of political debate in Australia, which is what I, I, I will talk about in a few moments, I am an optimist about the state of the debate. It is true that the debate is more toxic, more personal, um, uh, more polarised than at most times in our history. Now, I think that's, that's a conclusion we can reach. Uh, and I very much welcome uh, the role of the Centre for Independent Studies in trying to elevate that debate and having a serious discussion, even though obviously I don't agree with all the things the Centre argues for in its publications. Uh, I do take them seriously. So, for example, I, I read and, and enjoyed and thought a very valuable contribution, uh, Robert Carling's recent lengthy piece on uh, fiscal policy um, and uh, the retreat from surplus over recent decades. I thought that was a very serious contribution. I say in the same spirit of respect, and I know he's here, I, I found less useful Simon Cowan's recent publication, which was headed, Pass Unfunded Tax Cuts and Leave the Mess for Labor. Um, <laughs> I found that less constructive, Simon. Um, <laughs> but uh, we do, there, there's a lot of talking at each other in politics these days, a lot of talking past each other. And I think that people from different political heritages can really uh, benefit from talking to each other. And uh, I, I recently read, I didn't go to the lecture, but I read the lecture uh, by Brett Stevens at Lowe Institute. And one uh, paragraph from that, which I thought I'd quote which I thought might appeal to this, uh, this gathering at the Centre for Independent Studies was this, where he said, but to say I disagree, I refuse, you're wrong. These are the words that define our individuality, give us our freedom, enjoin our tolerance, enlarge our perspective, seize our attention, energise our progress, make our democracies real and give hope encouraged, uh, encourage to oppressed people everywhere. And I think that makes, uh, that's a very sound point. And another point that he made, in the American context is that uh, a recent opinion poll showed that 50% of Republicans would not approve of their son or daughter marrying a Democrat and 30% of Democrats returned the favour and would not approve of their children marrying a Republican, which I think is a particularly sad statistic. And he makes the point that uh, political mixed marriages are the new racial mixed marriages, that they, they have lower approval rates in the United States than racial mixed marriages did uh, early in the last century, which I think goes to the toxicity of the debate in the United States, something we have to some degree avoided here, but nevertheless, we still have uh, to deal with. And uh, I'm not gonna make a partisan speech today, not a partisan tub-thumping speech in any sense, although I will, of course, defend my uh, side of politics and provide the other side with a few character assessments along the way, but I'm, I'm not here, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not here to uh, convince you to uh, vote for us. You, you know who you wanna vote for, and I'm not here to try and uh, do that today, but I am here to have a serious discussion with you about some policy matters. Uh, but I will, uh, of course, um, uh, draw on a few examples as I go. Although it did occur to me that I should say that um, uh, given I'm the shadow treasurer to an opposite number whose centrepiece of the last budget was a $6 billion bank tax, uh, which was unforeshadowed and not consulted upon, and his idea of energy policy is to drag the chief executives of the energy companies for a perp, for a perp walk through Parliament House every couple of months to lecture them that they should put their prices down, I feel right at home at this... Uh, <laughs> at this free market think tank um, uh, and uh, we are in, very, in, in a very real sense ideological bedfellows. Um, and I do want to turn to the state of the political debate um, uh, but one area where we will find a large amount of agreement even though we may not agree on how we get there uh, is of course the need to return the budget to a sustainable balance in Australia. Uh, that is very important to me as the alternative treasurer. Uh, while we are yet to announce our fiscal rules and our budget bottom line, and of course it's far too early for us to do that 
given that the budget moves around with each update. Um, of course, we will do that in a very explicit sense before the next election. Uh, and we do uh, take very seriously the case of budget repair and hence our embrace of very serious reforms like negative gearing reform, capital gains tax reform, family trust reform, all things I'm more than happy to talk about in the question and answer uh, session. But I see the return to budget balance as important for Australia's future, important to lock in the AAA rating, uh, which is important for confidence and reducing uh, our uh, debt interest bill. Uh, it also provides a uh, degree of flexibility for myself and future treasurers to respond to international events, which you don't currently have with the buffer that we're going to have. And I think uh, that sort of fiscal management is an entirely Labor thing to do. Of course, the first post-war surplus was introduced by Paul Keating in 1987. Uh, the Menzies, Holt, McMahon, Fraser governments did not deliver a surplus at any point in their tenure. And of course, from my point of view, a commitment to social justice, which I hold very dear and is what, one of the things that drives me in politics. And again, I, I think a commitment to social justice is a true mark of a small L liberal. Not that I'm making that case to you today, but it fits very nicely and indeed very comfortably from my point of view with a fiscally rigorous approach. And new spending commitments aren't always the best way of tackling a problem. Indeed, they're often not the best way. Better regulation, incentives, uh, proper frameworks often achieve just as much and the very least must accompany uh, new spending. And of course, uh, what we believe in is uh, uh, improving the social fabric, but that does not necessarily mean, of course, throwing money at every problem. Uh, but I did want to today mainly just talk about the state of the reform debate in Australia. Uh, and I'm optimistic about this. Now, this is a matter of some public debate and, and uh, we're blessed to have present with us Paul Kelly, one of Australia's most eminent uh, journalists. Now, I'll tell you a bit about uh, Paul and my history. Um, now, it took me a little while to work up the courage to tell Paul all of this, but I'll share it all with you. Um, now, in 1984, I won the best citizenship prize for year six at Smithfield Public School uh, as a school citizen. And this entitled me to the princely prize of a $10 Angus and Robertson book voucher, which I took off to Angus and Robertson and bought The Hawke Ascendancy uh, in 1984, which was the first book I'd ever bought on politics and still sits on my bookshelf, now surrounded by many, other, uh, many thousands of other books. Uh, but I regard The Hawke Ascendancy, uh, together with The End of Certainty, in any list of the top 10 books written on Australian political history, those two should be in it. I'm less of a fan of triumph and demise, but maybe that's because I'm in it. Um, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, uh, if you took the unmaking of Goff uh, through to triumph and demise uh, and put them together, you would have the best political history of the last 40 years that's been written. And it's my view, despite the fact I've got them all, and I'm sure most of us have them all, it would still be a good thing to issue a box set, Paul, for a collector's item, a collector's edition box set of those books. Um, very good idea, very good idea. Uh, the other story I'll tell you about Paul is that, uh, as Tom was kind enough to mention, I uh, wrote a book about the, uh, Australia's 12 most notable treasurers. Now, for the record, it is the most notable treasurers, not the 12 best. That's how Jim Cairns made the cut. <laughs> In fact, I started, I, 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 when I decided to, go, to write the book, to engage in the project, I thought, well, there's too many treasurers to write a book about. There's 40 treasurers. That'll be too boring. And, um, I'll pick the 12 most notable and then thought about who they were. And as it turned out, it was six Labor, six Liberal. And obviously, there's some overlap with the best, but not entirely. Uh, Cairns was chosen, of course, of the tumultuous period of, of, of his time. And I started from, a, obviously, as a former treasurer and hopeful future treasurer, from an vantage point of sympathy with each of the, the treasurers. They were all trying to do good things. They were all grappling with difficult circumstances. So I started 
from a point of sympathy, but the only one I ended up not being positive about in the final analysis was Cairns, who of course was a complete disaster as treasurer. Um, but I, I, in, in the course of my research, I came across this article uh, from The Australian in 1975. Uh, we're writing about the, the Bill Hayden treasurership. And uh, at this point, I was shadow treasurer and I was engaged in a ferocious political argument with Joe Hockey about whether government spending should grow in that given year at 3.1% or 2.9%. Ferocious argument we were in. I found this article by a young political journalist called Paul Kelly praising the courage and the policy smarts of Treasurer Bill Hayden, saying he was the best treasurer since the end of the war and praising his courage for reducing the growth in government spending from 50% per annum to 25% per annum. <laughs> and I rang Paul up and told him I found this article and he said, yes, different times, different times. <laughs> now. The reason I raise Paul, of course, as uh, an eminent political historian and, and journalist is um, because I'm going to respect, in the, in the spirit of respectful engagement and debate, I'm going to respectfully disagree with an argument that Paul ran in Triumph and Demise and runs in, in articles that the age of reform in Australia is dead, that the political class has let Australia down. Now, I understand that argument. I certainly understand the frustrations of the stop-start process of reform over the last decade and um, all the personnel changes that have gone along with that. I completely understand that. Uh, but I have a different perspective to Paul. I'm an optimist about political reform and policy reform. Uh, I don't believe we can let the age of reform be dead. Uh, I certainly didn't get into politics to preside uh, over an existing set of circumstances. I got into politics to change things, to improve things. That's what reform is. Of course, everybody has their own perspective on reform. Um, you might have seen that movie, a Brother, Oh Brother, We're Out There, where there's a classic line in that movie that I've always remembered, it's about a, a race for a governor of a US state and the, as I recall the brother of the candidate says, people like that reform, we should get ourselves some of that reform. <laughs> um, so we all can argue about what reform looks like but I think we can all agree that our 26 years of uninterrupted economic growth did not happen by accident and they won't continue uh, without ongoing reforms and indeed we can improve social mobility and improve uh, the quality of the social fabric in our society by reforms and improve and return the budget to balance. It won't return to balance. It simply won't without, in my view, very substantial policy levers being pulled. It just, just simply won't return to balance uh, on the current trajectory without significant policy changes. But that doesn't mean that I think reform just is easy or it will happen automatically. No, far from it. I think reform is hard. I'm just an optimist that we can get it done. And uh, there are three elements, I think, to reform, uh, to make it successful, which I thought I'd touch upon uh, in my remarks today. Now, we in the opposition have, I think, whether you like our policies or dislike them, I think it would be difficult to argue that we've adopted a small target approach, that we've avoided uh, leading the policy debate. We have done uh, quite the opposite. As I'm on my feet here today, uh, Bill Shorten is on his feet in Canberra, announcing a Labor government will introduce a National Integrity Commission legislate for a federal ICAC. That's just the latest iteration early in the year of uh, the policies that we are embracing and putting out and leading the debate. I would argue that we have announced more policy than any opposition since uh, John Hewson in 1993. Um, and again, we do that because we believe in reform. But the, that goes to one of the three elements, I think, of successful reform in Australia uh, in this period. And they are, firstly, to seek a mandate. Uh, secondly, a clear, consistent approach and a realistic narrative and a consistent approach to reform. And thirdly, the need to consider equity. And I'll just deal briefly with each of those uh, points. 
Now, firstly, the issue of mandate. Now, again, if you look at the argument about reform, we can all point to reforms that have failed, governments that have failed in their reform agenda. Um, you might point to the Abbott hockey budget of 2014 or the entire Campbell-Newman government, for example. But I would point to successful reforms, whether I agree with them or not, reforms that have been implemented and successfully bedded down. Uh, so, for example, Mike Baird's electricity privatisation and council amalgamation, which got messy towards the end, but nevertheless uh, was by and large implemented. Or I would point to uh, what I regard as the only serious tax reform in Australia that has occurred in the last decade, which is the tax reform agenda of the Barr-Gallagher government, or the Gallagher-Barr government, in the ACT. Now, quite bold, abolishing stamp duty, uh, replacing it with a broad-based land tax, uh, very politically courageous, on which they've won two elections, uh, going to the people and seeking a mandate. So my argument is that to be successful in reform, firstly, you have to have the courage to seek a mandate to do it. Now, my argument with the 2014 budget was about its substance, but it was also about the lack of a mandate. Now, I'll be frank with you. Tony Abbott had to work very hard to lose the 2013 election, very hard to lose the election. We made it easy for him. And yet, he said in the lead-up to the 2013 election, no cuts to schools, no cuts to hospitals, no cuts to pensions, no cuts to the ABC or the SBS. He said it consistently. Now then, how can you have the moral authority in the 2014 budget to introduce all those things about eight months after the election? We have the Charter of Budget Honesty in Australia now, the old Treasurer's Playbook of the press conference after the election say, oh, gee, the books are so much worse than what I thought. All our policies have to be scrapped. I mean, it's all through the... The books of the last 40 years, every treasurer has done it. There's no excuse for that anymore. We know the state of the books. The Charter of Budget Honesty makes it clear to Peter Costello's credit. So there is no excuse for not seeking a mandate. And uh, uh, I think, again, similarly, Campbell Newman said in the lead up to his election, which he was never going to lose, he would sack not one public servant, not engage in any privatisations. And then, on coming to office, dismiss 20,000 public servants. And we wonder why people are cynical. Now, I'm not suggesting that our reform agenda will sail through the Parliament. I don't know the makeup of the Senate, but I know this. When I go to the Senate crossbench and argue for the measures that I'll introduce in the first Labor budget, uh, if we're elected, I'll be able to say to them, you might not like all our policies, but we have the moral authority. We have a mandate to do it. We've actually said to people, we will reform negative gearing. We will reform family trusts. These are both two things which have been in too hard basket for 40 years. Uh, I know. People said to me when we announced negative gearing policy, thanks very much, you've just lost, the, lost us the next election. This is too hard. And I argued that we hadn't just lost the next election. I think without, I hope, sounding arrogant about it, uh, that judgment has been vindicated. We've won that policy debate. The Australian people are up for a difficult debate. They know that the good times cannot necessarily continue without some people having to make a contribution through proper reform. So seeking a mandate, I think, is essential. Secondly a clear and consistent reform argument. Now, again, I, I said I wasn't going to make a tub-thumping partisan speech, and I'm not, but I will make some partisan points uh, as part of this contribution. Uh, again, taking negative gearing, for example, we've argued that consistently now for three years. It's been a long argument. But before we argued it, and this is a subset, before we announced it, uh, it took two years of policy development. I went to 19 meetings of the Shadow Cabinet's Expenditure Review Committee to get approval for our negative gearing policy. There was not a question a journalist could ask to me about negative gearing reform that I hadn't been asked by one of my colleagues. 
serious policy development. And then the consistency to argue for it in terms of budget repair, housing affordability over the long term. Now when we have stop-start politics and stop-start reform, that undermines the case for policy reform. So again, without meaning to be overly partisan, when you have state income taxes announced one day and that policy being reversed the next, or the G GST debate, which was a stop-start debate, uh, or a whole range of uh, ideas which just haven't been followed through on, then you lose that momentum for reform. You never win a policy argument in the first day. You don't win it in the second. You don't win it in the third. You don't win it in the third week. It is a long, hard slog. And you've got to stick to the policies that you believe in and argue for them. And that, I would argue, is what we're doing and what the government's not been doing. So that, I think, also augurs well for reform. And, of course, uh, the third element is uh, the matter of uh, equity. Now, that is not to say that there will be no losers in reform. Of course, when you reform, some people are better off and some people are worse off. You have to have the courage to argue for that. But you also have to be able to argue that your policy is based on fairness. I stress that does not mean that there are no losers, but it means that the contribution is proportionate to the ability uh, to make that contribution. One of the mantras of the Hawke-Keating years, which you know, I will argue was the most successful period of economic reform in our nation's history, was restraint with equity. They engaged in the market, they engaged in big, important, bold, open reforms, but they also invested in the social wage. They lifted the age pension, they introduced Medicare, they introduced superannuation. They had an embroidered story to the Australian people to say, we are going to open up the economy, we're going to embrace the market, but we're going to take people with us as we go. It wasn't an us versus them sort of uh, environment, people being told that, the, that we could no longer afford. Uh, to carry the age pension and those sorts of things. What we did was embrace restraint with equity and I think that works successfully and it's a continuing model for the future. Now, when arguing about the reform, there are, of course, uh, the, whether reform is dead, there are, of course, uh, oft-cited culprits who have defeated reform in Australia. One of them is social media and the other is the 24-hour media cycle. Now, I think a politician blaming either of those two things for a lack of reform is a complete and utter cop-out complete cop-out. These things have changed the nature of political debate, but they have not necessarily made it more difficult. With every change comes an advantage. Yes, social media has given a voice to people who previously didn't have a voice, some of whom it's not pleasant to hear their voices for those of us engaged in political uh, arguments. I don't regularly check my tw Twitter feed and my mentions in Twitter. It's not generally good for my mental health. <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is that it also provides us with a voice, provides us with an opportunity to talk directly to people, uh, social media. It is not a one-way street. Uh, I think that if Peter, Peter Costello or Paul Keating had Twitter at, at their um, fingertips when they were engaging in reform, they would have taken it for a spin. I mean, you know, when Paul Keating was reforming, he used to have John Laws in the morning, the six o'clock news, and print journalists, and that's it. That was the only opportunity to communicate with the Australian people in this also takes me to the 24-hour media cycle and the uh, cacophony of uh, media channels available now. Again, yes, this changes things, but it's also an opportunity. Uh, if I was so minded, if I said to Hugh, my advisor here today, listen, when I finish this speech, get me on to Sky News, he'd ring up Sky News, and in 10 minutes I'd be in the Sydney studio and I'd be doing an interview. I mean, that wasn't the case 20 or 30 years ago. There are new opportunities for those of us who believe in reform to be able to make our case and to argue for our policies. So I don't accept uh, that it's uh, 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 somehow reform is dead because somehow the media cycle has changed. That is not an excuse. A politician complaining of too much media 
It's like an Olympic swimmer complaining of too much water in the pool. <laughs> I mean, it's just not acceptable uh, and we should embrace uh, media in all its forms to make our case. And finally, uh, the other thing that sometimes get blamed is a lack of bipartisanship. Now, uh, we all in public life uh, should reflect on whether there are more things we can work together on and, and uh, seek agreement on. That is true of all of us, both sides of politics. Uh, and sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Uh, and there's often internal debates about you know, particular policy proposals, whether we should support or oppose. And that's, of course, a given. Uh, but what I don't think uh, is that there's ever been a golden age of bipartisanship that somehow we've lost. That is just not the case. The 1980s were not bipartisan. The 1990s were not bipartisan. The 1970s were certainly not bipartisan. Uh, there's always been a political debate, as there should be. We are paid to express our views, uh, to think of alternative plans. We are paid to be a debating chamber, not an echo chamber. Uh, so I don't think that there was ever a golden age of bipartisanship. As much as I accept that we should all reflect and all constantly think about whether there's more things that we can work on together. Now, uh, having said uh, all that about why I'm optimistic about reform, I will say that there is, I think, one reform which I do think would make reforms easier going forward and should be embraced by both sides of politics and could be implemented, which is a four-year term for the House of Representatives. I mean, a three-year term is nuts. By the time we're in and settled into government and introducing policies, we are already thinking about the next election. Now, of course, it is by far the, the shortest parliamentary term in the world, putting aside the two-year term of the Congress. Um, uh, but, of course, uh, most countries around the world have four or five-year uh, terms, and historically some even seven-year terms. Four years is too short. Three years is too short. Four years, I think, is ideal. I'm open-minded about... Uh, fixing the terms and of course Gough Whitlam had the grand plan of four-year fixed terms aligned with state elections so we'd only vote once. Um, whether that's a good idea or not is open to debate but four-year terms I think are absolutely essential. Now historically uh, agreement has fallen down because while both sides of politics officially agree with four-year terms, that's our, the official policy of the Labor Party, the official policy of the Liberal Party is four-year terms. Historically we've not agreed about what it means for the Senate uh, because uh, the Liberal Party's not been comfortable uh, with the way we see the Senate operating under a four-year term and we've not been comfortable with how they see the Senate operating under a four-year term. I think we should just sort that out. Uh, I think uh, people of good faith sitting around the table could reach agreement on that and I think it would be a price worth paying in order to get four-year terms, which would lead, I think, to better governance and I think could be done. And uh, uh, as you know, it's our policy to take four-year terms to the people in the next term of government if we're, if we're elected to government and I would hope and, and, and think that it's within our wit to reach bipartisan agreement on that because uh, it won't be passed without bipartisan agreement. History tells us and I think we should give that uh, a very big um, attempt to try and get a bipartisan position of four-year terms to take the people during the next term. But thanks again for the invitation to be uh, with you today. I've enjoyed myself. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Uh, and now I believe, Tom, it's time for questions, suggestions and accusations. <laughs> And our first question goes to Paul Kelly. Uh, write a reply. Write a reply. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shadow Treasurer, thanks so much for that uh, address. Uh, and also thanks for the optimistic uh, tone you took. I think a lot of people will appreciate that very much. I wanted to ask you not so much um, uh, about what you spoke about, about the prospects for reform, but about Labor's reform agenda. I think people in the room would be very interested uh, in the principles you see governing Labor's reform agenda, not a long list of all the policies themselves, but given that 
we live in a world where the President of the United States is calling on an America first agenda, which is highly protectionist. The British Labor Party's gone very much to the left. Um, I wonder in terms of productivity, market orientation, government solutions and interventions, uh, and the tax burden overall, the way you would uh, characterise the principles that would govern your reform agenda as Treasurer? Well, thanks, Paul. I mean, I think the principles that would under, underpin my reform agenda, the incoming Labor government's reform agenda, uh, go to growth, a holistic view of growth, uh, belief in economic growth, which lifts people out of poverty, turns aspiration into reality, which is, in many senses, the Labor mission, doesn't come from one single policy lever. It comes from investment. It comes from competitiveness. Uh, and I believe we are the party of economic growth. It's what distinguishes us from the Greens to our left who don't fundamentally believe in economic growth. We do. We do know that it lifts people out of poverty and, and is the greatest poverty alleviation program that's ever been invented. Uh, but we don't believe in growth alone. Uh, we believe in improving opportunity at the same time and ensuring that growth is fairly shared, um, whether that's geographically. You know, I, we, I haven't touched on uh, the rise of populism in Australia, but uh, when you have youth unemployment rates in parts of Queensland, at considerably north of where they should be, you know, over 20% in areas which should be thriving with, with good tourism opportunities, etc. No wonder people are feeling alienated. Uh, no wonder people are turning to populism. Uh, so we believe in growth and we believe in growth plus, growth plus inclusion, growth, growth plus equity. Uh, and certainly in terms of, again, without going into uh, uh, policy specifics, certainly uh, a belief in an open economy. Um, I'm, I I've said previously, uh, I regard free trade agreements as the third best policy answer. The best is multilateralism through the World Trade Organization. The second best is multilateral trade negotiation and bilateral free trade negotiations are the third best and you know, often trade diverting, but nevertheless I accept they're better than nothing. Um, but they're not all, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is a perfect deal and they should be considered on their merits and they should be considered in terms of their impact on the economy and good deals should be progressed and supported and promoted. Uh, Mr Bowen, I'm asking this question in the context of the British Labor Party under Jeremy Corbyn and the fact that they have effectively announced the discontinuation of an effort to improve the net wealth of Britain with the proposals for the renationalisation of railways, water, gas, so that uh, by the time the state and the taxpayer had bought those things, Britain would not be the place it is today. Could you tell us the top three Australian Labor Party net wealth creation policies that, of course, excludes the distribution of taxpayer money, but net wealth increases. Uh, thanks for the question. And without getting into the nuances of UK politics, I can assure you we're not going to the election with any renationalisations uh, <laughs> as part of our policy, um, uh, not something that uh, I will be engaging with. I love British politics. I listen to British politics podcasts when I'm not listening to Tom uh, often. Uh, and uh, the political debate in Britain is a fascinating one. In terms of uh, our pro-growth policies, um, of course, we'll have more to say about our tax policies. We put a lot out there, but we have much more to say. Uh, and I believe uh, our 
uh, tax policies when it comes to growth will stand to scrutiny and I'm more than happy to engage in that debate. Uh, I believe uh, the NBN is absolutely, a proper NBN is absolutely essential to productivity improvements. Uh, obviously we believe in uh, more investment and fair investment in schools. I believe that is in the long term, very long term, a very much a pro-growth policy. I think perhaps even more importantly than that, our vocational education and training system in Australia is fundamentally broken. And there is a massive return to the nation of getting it right. It's probably where our federal system has broken down the most. I'm actually, a, more, again, more optimistic about our federation than most. And I think of, when you think of the world's great federations, us, the United States, Canada, Germany, India, uh, we do it better than most, maybe not as well as Canada, but we do it better than most. I think our federation works more than it doesn't work, but I think one area where it's fundamentally broken is vocational education and training. Uh, responsibilities are split and not well understood. I'm a former minister for vocational education and I have trouble explaining it uh, as to, in terms of what the state's responsible for, what we're responsible for. Uh, there have been cuts, but it's not primarily a matter of money. I mean, there, there, there is money being spent on vocational education and training, but we're not getting the outcomes I think we so desperately need. We're not training for the jobs of the future. So I would say our approach to vocational education and training would very much be in the top three of our pro-growth policies. Simon Cowan from the Centre for Independent Studies. <laughs> Another right of reply. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we got volume. Uh, look, thank you very much for coming. Firstly, I wanted to make that clear, and, and I'm I think this is the largest audience we've had for one of these leadership lunches. So, um, you know, there's very clearly an appetite for understanding the policy positions, and, and you know, so it's fantastic that here. And I, I will plead the fifth on my uh, unfunded tax cuts piece. Um, but look, I, I mean, I think one of the things that, as a believer in small government, we've been quite disappointed in in recent years is that. Uh, the budget has largely seen a steady increase in the level of taxation and level of spending for a, a number of years. But any attempts by the current government to rein that in really have been largely unsuccessful. Um, and, and I think that represents one of the reasons why we have so many people here is that there is a hope or at least you know, uh, the possibility of a hope that we might see a change in that. Uh, from the perspective of a Labor government, what do you offer believers in small government because I, I see a lot of policies that are, uh, you know, aimed at fixing problems with more government intervention and more taxation. But, but what could believers in small government in this room get behind in your agenda? Yes, yeah, Simon, again, I take a more optimistic note. Um, I think there has been, at varying points, bipartisan attempts to rein in unsustainable spending. To be frank, and I'm not trying to make a smart political point here, much of which was baked in during the Howard years, um, extension of middle-class welfare. And both governments, both persuasions, have worked to pare that back. Sometimes with the support of the other side and sometimes not. So we in office first pared back the baby bonus and then abolished the baby bonus. It was unsustainable. Uh, Joe Hockey, who, was shadow, who held my role at the time we were doing that, uh, said it was equivalent to the one-child policy of China to get rid of the baby, baby bonus. I mean, so debate wasn't particularly elevated at that point. Uh, likewise, this government has engaged in um, trying to pair some of the back, um, quite often with our support. I mean, we've had arguments, we've had, we have differences, we are areas we oppose, but actually, while they don't make the headlines, there's also been areas which have sailed through. And uh, Matthias Cormann and I are the, are the appointed, you know, negotiators of these things, and, and uh, we work them through, and we always tell each other where we're going to agree and disagree, and where we agree, we work very cooperatively to get 
these changes through the parliament expeditiously because there are things which have been spent in more affordable times that are simply unsustainable. Um, and again, um, we, we uh, for example, uh, the, last, the last media economic forecast, I'm not complaining about this, stole one of our policies, stole one of my policies, which was to pay back family tax benefit for people at the upper end. We announced it 12 months earlier, the government adopted it. Okay, it's, it's not, it wasn't sustainable. I mean, while everybody would like their family tax benefit, we are going to get the budget back to balance. Now, then these things have to give. Now, I believe in a combination of revenue and spending measures. I believe that anybody who says you can get back to balance with only one is wrong. I mean, if you don't, if you think that we can get back to budget balance with only cutting spending, I'm going to disagree. That's just not going to work. I also am not pretending to you that only revenue measures uh, will add up. I think we need a combination of both. Both have changed since the surplus years. Spending has gone up since the surplus years. Revenue has gone down. If we only try and so change one side of the equation, we will fail as a nation. Uh, so um, just as we have um, worked with the government um, where we can, where we agree on uh, spending changes, some of which we've been in internally debated, which haven't been easy, but at the end of the day we've agreed to support, um, uh, I would similarly hope and expect that um, if there was an incoming Labor government, there'd be a similar approach. I don't know what role Matthias would play in the opposition, but I imagine he would be the opposition's appointed negotiator with me and we would continue in the same vein. Uh, before we go to the next question, um, debt to GDP spending has increased uh, dramatically in the course of the last decade. Um, one of your political heroes is Paul Keating. <clears throat> in May 1986, at the height of the currency crisis, uh, in one of those famous interviews he had with John Laws, he said that we faced a future as a banana republic unless spending was cut. I want to read these quotes out to you. We must let Australians know truthfully and earnestly what sort of international hole we are in. If the deficit is not dealt with, we are done for. We'll end up being a third-rate economy. And then he went on to say, people appreciate the truth and one is delighted to tell it to them. The days of the magic pudding are gone in this country you can't go and have a slice and come back and find it isn't diminished. We can't turn our back on growth and go on writing massive welfare checks. Will anyone in the Labor Party or indeed the Coalition talk that language in 2018? <laughs> well, Paul, of course, his first job was at Sydney County Council where he <coughs> learnt elements of the English language which he later sent into battle um, in the case of economic reform. <laughs> Everybody will choose their own language. But I, I guess it goes back, Tom, to what I was um, referring to in my opening remarks. People, I think, are up for a conversation that things have to give, that things have to change. Again, as I said, um, it was conventional wisdom that any party which talked about changes to negative gearing was committing political suicide. Similar with family trusts. I mean, John Howard reformed family trusts to his credit when he was treasurer. But then Peter Costello tried and Joe Hockey tried. They both knew it had to be, had to be done. They couldn't because of you know, Liberal Party base issues. But it has to be done. But we are saying to people, you're going to make a contribution and superannuation. Now, the number of people who said to me in chairman's lounges and virgin lounges over the last two years, who've come up to me and said, listen, I'm a massive beneficiary of the current superannuation policy and while it's legal I will 
utilise it to its maximum extent, but I'm so glad that you're going to fix it. I mean, is is phenomenal. And similarly, I think you can have the conversation with people who are not necessarily at the high end to say things like current uh, payments or tax concessions or whatever they may be just simply aren't sustainable. And I think that there is a reward for people willing to have that conversation and willing to engage in that debate. Um, we may not all use the Banana Republic language every day, um, but uh, we can very much throw out the book which says just vote for us and everything will be okay. There will be people who have to make a contribution if we're going to engage in proper budget reform. Final question, uh, Dallas McInerney, did you have a question? Thanks for the call, Tom. Thank you, Chris. Um, we Chris also went to university together, we should declare. Yes, yes. <laughs> Although we uh, weren't all members of the Labor Club, in your defence. No, we, we weren't. Um, hey, if I get you to reflect on something you have uh, spoken about previously, and you mentioned at the top of your remarks today about uh, there's a geographical divide around growth and opportunity as well. And if you leave this building and start heading west, uh, into outer metropolitan areas and the regions where we live, all the major indices start heading in the wrong direction. Health, education, employment, income. Um, and that there's no real good reason for that. Uh, it can be solved. Um, what sort of thinking have you and the Labor Party done around that? And how does it come into sharp focus with policy responses uh, for a future Labor government? Well, it's vital. It's vital, Dallas. Uh, thanks for the question. And, and you know, sometimes people ask me what got me involved in politics. I joined the Labor Party in 1988. Um, and it was in many senses. I grew up in Smithfield in Western Sydney. Uh, my father was a shift worker. I went to public school. In many senses, I knew that there were lots of smart people around me who were not going to go to university. I knew that our hospitals, I could just tell, and it wasn't, it wasn't a very sophisticated or polished policy approach. It was a gut feeling um, that our hospitals were being populated with people with avoidable diseases. It's still the case today. My electorate is the diabetes capital of Australia, uh, of metropolitan Australia. Um, diabetes has increased in Smithfield, where I live, by 30% over the last five years. Uh, and that, that, that is very <laughs> there, there are reasons for that. And we can talk about personal responsibility, but there are also societal reasons for that. Um, so it's very real. Um, and so we do need to um, very much embrace the policies of opportunity, whether it's not opportunity we think about, you know, giving everybody the right to go to university. Of course, that's important. I believe in it very passionately, but it's about so much more than that. It's about the right to grow to your full potential as an Australian, as every individual to grow to their full potential. That's what opportunity is about, whether that be through TAFE or vocational education and training or university or avoiding diabetes, which is a debilitating disease which affects your productivity and which more and more children are coming down with in my community where I live. Um, all this drives policy, has to drive policy, as well as all the, you know, the important things we've talked about today. We are, we are not fulfilling our role as a government if we're not investing in people, and I don't necessarily mean monetary investment in every instance, but investing in people to grow to their full capacity, which is very much affected by where you live. That's a statement of fact. In Australia, it is still very much affected by where you live as to whether you can grow to your full capacity. And we can't say that we are a truly sophisticated modern nation when where you live 
still determines your life chances to a very high degree. Economic growth is important, but it does not lift all boats equally. It simply doesn't. I, be I believe passionately economic growth, but it does not lift all boats equally. Governments have to navigate their way through that and help those be lifted to grow their full potential. Uh, and uh, whether, it, whether, it, whether it's our schools policy or whether it is health policy, um, uh, whether it is um, you know, urban affairs and amenity is important. I mean, access to public transport is important for opportunity, um, which, which isn't fairly shared. I mean, it's very hard to get around Western Sydney. It's improved dramatically from when I was growing up, but it's still very hard to get around Western Sydney and public transport, which cuts off career opportunities for people. So all these things are important going forward. So I, I agree with you, Dallas, even though we also come from different political heritages. Uh, I agree with you. It's absolutely important uh, and often overlooked in modern political discourse. Thank you, Chris. And uh, now for the vote of thanks, our colleague and board member here at the CIS, Nicholas Moore. Thanks, Chris. That was a tremendous um, presentation, and thank you so much for uh, coming here to share that with us uh, today. As, as Tom mentioned, it is I think everybody here in the room buys in. Uh, we at the CIS do believe in ideas and, and the power of ideas. We recently, of course, celebrated Australia Day on the weekend, and we can celebrate many things about Australia. We obviously have wonderful real estate, but why we've been successful, obviously, is about the ideas and, and how we're actually bringing ideas uh, to work. So where do these ideas come from? You know, in business we think about ideas all the time. Where do they come from, individuals and all the rest? And, and what, what I think we all know is ideas come from debate. We like to have ideas, we like to put them forward, we like to debate them, and we end up with in incredible outcomes. And th this is the history of, of our country, of course. Ideas have been debated, they've been de debated around the kitchen table, they've been debated at workplaces, in think tanks and universities, and, we, and in parliament. And I think we all owe a huge debt to uh, the members of parliament who step up and actually debate these in the national forum. And it's, it's great looking out at um, Macquarie Street with the uh, oldest parliament here, uh, where those debates have taken place. Uh, we can debate uh, the Labor Party, whether it's really the Liberal Party. Uh, that's a subject of, of debate, I think. Um, but we certainly can't debate whether the Labor Party hasn't been the party of ideas. If you look at all the important ideas and all the important issues in this country, the Labor Party has always been at the centre, whether it's Federation, whether it's the US Alliance, the welfare state in the 50s, or reform, as you mentioned, Chris, in the 80s. The Labor Party was there. It's part of the, the shaping of the country and the success that we celebrated on the, on the weekend. Chris, plainly you're in, the, in that tradition in the Labor Party. You're happy, as you say, to be no small target, to get out there with ideas and actually be, uh, be pushing them forward. And, and, and obviously your objectives I think everybody in this room would agree with in terms of economic growth, in terms of social mobility and equity. I think everybody here would, 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 would believe that. And I think we're full of appreciation to your uh, thought out long-term game in terms of actually how to make reform happen, how actually to, to embrace a mandate, obviously so important. And again, in terms of this debate, of actually having the debate with the broader community is so important. And to do that, of course, you need a consistent approach and you do need to show uh, the outcome. But as you mentioned, uh, Chris, it is a long, hard slog. You've been in a long, hard slog, obviously, all your career. There's a, a lot to go. A lot depends upon it, I think, for, for the nation in terms of that slog, that debate that you're engaged in. Uh, we certainly wish you the best in terms of that debate. We hope it goes well. We hope you engage the, the, the country and that great outcomes will, will follow. And so for years to come when we celebrate Australia Day, we'll be thinking about the sorts of uh, contribution you've made to the debate. So thank you very much for coming here today and, and sharing that with us.
Let me, let me second everything that uh, Nicholas said and also to thank Chris and to thank all of you here too as well. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for supporters like yourselves. Until next time, thank you very much.